Well, as Ben said, uh, you can make your way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, Get to pick up where we left off. Uh, Started part one of probably now looking like three in these first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 through 3. And if you remember last week, we began to address... Yet another issue that the Corinthian church had. You know, we've been studying this book uh, for a while now, obviously, off and on. We've had a big winter break, of course. But if you remember, um, from stretching back to from the very beginning, the church in Corinth was in no way an ideal church. It was a high-maintenance church, a church with many problems, and as we will confess, even um, in our experience, look, no, no church is perfect, right? Uh, you, 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 you attend somewhere long enough and you'll find that out because the church is made of sinners. And so what's so helpful about this book is that Paul writes, um, in many ways, even though he's challenging, constantly challenging issues, problems, sins, difficulties, um, he, yet he calls them saints, and he and he and he exhorts them to come then now and live in light of their position in Christ, and that is the Christian life, isn't it? And so we need to learn from this book. It's been an encouraging study. But you remember last time we we, we began this new section in chapter six, where Paul begins yet again to address another holdover and manifestation of worldliness in the Corinthian church, right? You know, sometimes, I don't know if this has been your experience, but you, you get saved, God rescues you, pulls you out of the muck and mire of the world, and then plops you into a ministry, or you try to learn how to now live as the people of God. And yet, there is a sense in which, uh, you know, Old habits are hard to shed, aren't they? And that was the case for the church in Corinth. In more than one way, there were, there were many holdovers from their old life. And he is just now specifically getting after yet another one. Um, specifically, in our section, they, they were, we find out that the Corinthians were still used to settling disputes and disagreements among themselves in ways that weren't helpful. They were still used to leveraging what they used to do in their old pagan life in society. Um, lawsuits and, uh, you know, they were used to suing one another for the littlest things they were and this is what Paul now seeks to correct. And, and he's going to write to them, look, you can't, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> That's just not what Christians do. See, apparently the, the Corinthians were dragging each other to court before uh, pagan officials over trivial earthly matters and disagreements. Remember, it's like, uh, you just picture it's like Judge Judy or Jerry Springer. It's that kind of thing. Although I just heard Steve Harvey apparently is a judge now. Um, thank you for that information, Ben. Very edifying. Uh, 
By the way, here, here's some more edifying information. I just couldn't help but keep looking, keep r- looking up like ridiculous lawsuits. Some of them were just so absurd. I'll give you two more. I know I read some of them last week, but just by way of, uh, again, introduction, <clears throat> one of them said this, and, is, and uh, Ben, this, this will tie into your weather, your weather stuff. Listen to this. An Israeli woman sued the weatherman from an Israeli television channel because he didn't predict the weather correctly. So look, 60% chance, snow. Look, could we sue the app here if it doesn't happen? Uh, Well, at least they put a percentage, right? According to the plaintiff, as a result of the weather report, she didn't dress correctly and suffered the flu. So she sued naturally. Uh, for $1,000 compensation, so not as ridiculous as some of the other uh, lawsuits we read of last time, Uh, for compensation of $1,000 for missing a week of work and the money she spent on medication, and she won. Yeah. So uh, this this other one I thought uh, was, this is ridiculous. So a 37-year-old from Austin, Texas sued his date because he was offended that she spent all the time during the movie Guardians of the Galaxy texting on her phone. (laughs) How dare she? How dare she? Listen, again, as, as absurd and appalling and as ridiculous as those examples are to us, like you get into our passage here and we find Paul finds that these lawsuits that the Corinthians were filing against one another were just as outrageous, if not even more. They were incompatible, what they were doing, with the Christian life. And so he writes to them here, here in our context, not only then had the Corinthians failed to keep the church pure, you remember from chapter 5, by not expelling the incestuous, sexually immoral man. But we find out in our text that they also failed to keep the church unified by not handling conflict between its members over issues that should never have gone to court. And so as Paul pens this section, he is absolutely beside himself. And you can tell it as you're reading it. Um, writing mostly with sarcastic questions that expose the folly of their situation. Listen, think about this, guys. And and this is one implication that um, just came to me this week. Just in light of the transition from chapter 5 about sexual immorality and the sin of incest that was even shocking to the pagan culture, into chapter 6, where it's something very normal out there in the world, if it tells us anything, the fact that Paul placed these two kinds of issues side by side, that is, gross, abnormal sexual immorality, and an inability, something as small as an inability to resolve petty conflicts in the body, side by side, and made it an issue of our testimony should remind us that our testimony, listen, is equally impacted by one as it is by the other. Have you thought about that? Look, a lot of times we think 
man, we look at those news um, reports. Uh, oh, megachurch pastor falls into this crazy affair, and just and we and we rightly we're grieved. We think, man, that really just defames the name of Christ, and that is a terrible testimony for the church. Yes, it is. But you know what Paul adds to that? He says, and when you can't resolve conflict brother to brother, it's the same. It's just as appalling. It's just as injurious to the name of Christ and the reputation of Christ. In other words, it isn't just the massive heinous sins that ruin the church's witness. Rather, our witness and representation of Christ and the gospel to this world is equally tarnished. Beloved, it's equally tarnished. Look, when you can't seem to deal with the small issues of body life together and you have to turn to unbelievers for help. Remember last time I said, I just asked you, look, have you, has drama in the church? Have you ever taken drama in the church to your coworkers who aren't believers and sought their advice on stuff. Listen, Paul would be just as appalled at that. And so, what does that say and communicate to the watching world about what it means to be a Christian? Think about it. What does that communicate to those outside the church? How can we as the church claim to have answers to the most significant questions of life and yet not know how to handle such small issues. This was the problem in Corinth. Look again at verse 1 then. Just to review what we covered last time, verse 1 really sets the stage for this situation. Paul writes in amazement and unbelief at He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? You could hear it in his tone, right? How dare you? And we we noted last week that the, the existence of this scenario and these lawsuits was a problem for three reasons in particular. First, because of the nature of the conflict that they were squabbling over was Petty and trivial. Do you notice the, the language here, including the word um, Paul translates as case or matter or thing, tells us that he's not necessarily talking even about something sinful or criminal that caused the dispute. But rather, verse 2 describes this case with the adjective smallest. You remember? meaning it was a very insignificant issue to begin with. In fact, if you look ahead, verses 3 and 4, Paul uses a word in verses 3 and 4 that's translated matters of this life, at least in my translation, which suggests to us that the disagreement was actually over that which pertains to everyday earthly affairs, things like property and wages, In other words, the civil dispute was over a relatively small, minor legal matter, and yet neither party was backing down. And that was the first reason why uh, it was this. This was such a a heinous 
testimony in Paul's mind because of how small and insignificant the issues really were. But second, this was a problem to the Apostle Paul also because of the parties that were involved. Both were Christians. Both the plaintiff and the defendant were both fellow believers that should have been loving and forgiving and caring for one another. And notice, while verse 1 says against his neighbor or literally another, it's clarified and made clear in verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 specify unmistakably that these neighbors are brothers in Christ who both belong to the same church in Corinth, brother against brother. In fact, that fellow members, they, they, were, they were fellow members of the same body, the same church family, suing one another. How shameful and astonishing. And lastly, third, remember it was a problem also, maybe perhaps most serious of all, because these cases, not only because they were over small, petty, earthly issues, and not only because they were between Christian and Christian, but because they were a problem because they were being decided and taken before pagan authorities in worldly courts and not settled within the Christian community in-house. Notice twice, Paul emphasizes in absolute shock that they were taking these disputes, verse 1, before the unrighteous and not before the saints. That verse 6, brother goes to law with brother, and that even before unbelievers. So Paul could not believe, could not fathom that fellow Christians were resorting to worldly means to get what they wanted. He was appalled that the church would be turning to the world for judgment. Listen, again, let me just um, think, think about this with me. What an indictment on the Christian community in Corinth. You see what the problem is now? Are you beginning to realize why this was such a blow to their testimony and to the reputation of Christ? So for the, for the rest of this passage, Paul, here was your outline that I gave you last time. Paul seeks to correct the Corinthians by giving them two reasons why they should be able to settle earthly disagreements among themselves. Two reasons. Why Christians can and should settle earthly disagreements among themselves or within the church. Um, and it was, they were very wordy last time. I'll give you what I gave you last time and then I'll shorten it for you this time. That's what happens. You give me a week, I'll button it up. Okay, so last time I said the first reason was because in Christ... We should be able to judge earthly matters easier than spiritual matters, right? That was verses 2 through 6. We should be able to judge earthly matters easier than spiritual matters, verses 2 through 6. And then second reason, we should settle earthly disagreements within the church. Because in Christ, we should value eternal rewards over temporary gain. Verses 7 through 11. Um, here are the shortened versions of these two, okay? First reason, verses 2 through 6, because Christians should have a superior wisdom. 
Because Christians should have a superior wisdom. They should be able to settle these matters themselves. That's the whole point. Verses 2 through 6. And then second, we should be able to settle these matters within ourselves because Christians should have an eternal perspective. Verses 7 through 11. They shouldn't fight about such temporal things. That's the point. Notice first what we started looking at last time. Christians should be able to settle earthly disagreements within the church. Why? Because we have a superior wisdom. Or, like I put it last time, because earthly matters should be easier to judge than spiritual matters. Listen, here's, here's, <clears throat> here's the point. A supreme, here, let me, let, me, let, me, let me give you some analogies, some illustrations. A supreme court justice should be able to mediate between two squabbling toddlers, right? A NASA space engineer should be able to repair a broken Lego airplane. <laughs> a world-class French pastry chef should be able to figure out how to cook those Pillsbury croissant rolls. Or crescent rolls. I think it's crescent rolls. The ones that come in the tube, you know, and you, anyway... That's the argument that Paul makes here. It's the same logic, arguing from the greater the lesser. Notice verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Look, the fact that Paul asks rather sarcastically, look, do you not know implies that the Corinthians should have known what he was about to say to them, but they weren't acting like it. Remember? So, so what, what spiritual reality should they have realized that was so incompatible with how they were behaving? Here in verse 2, Paul says they should have known that one day Christians would be called upon to judge much bigger issues than they were facing at the time between brothers. You see it? One day, guys, you're going to judge the world. That is, they should have known that someday in Christ, they would preside, they would rule, they would decide over the cosmos. Someday, believer, you, you will, be a, you will have a part in deciding matters, literally, of cosmic proportions. And Scripture teaches and affirms this everywhere, that believers will one day reign with Jesus and rule over all creation in union with their King. We looked at this last time, Daniel 7, Matthew 19. 2 Timothy 2.12, Revelation 2.3.20. Which means, listen, Christians, someday we will decide and judge much more significant matters than just this petty squabble that you might have over some material thing with your brother. And so the logic goes, look, if that's the case, how much more? Should the Corinthians have been able to judge the trivial matters that were causing them such trouble and disunity in their church? 
See, they should have realized that as saints in Christ, let me remind you, with both, by the way, the Spirit and the Word at your disposal, we possess, here's the point, a superior wisdom, which has been Paul's point throughout this letter already. A superior wisdom that is from God, chapter 2, that makes us competent to judge not only this life, but also the life to come, he says. After all, we have the mind of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 16. Should we not therefore be able to handle the smallest matters in comparison? So, beloved, let me, let me ask you this. Do you sometimes live... Think about, the, think about what their, the mistake was for them. Do you... It is the same thing that we do sometimes, though. It's, we are guilty of this, too. Look, when we don't live as though we have the resources that we need in Christ for the Christian life also. We do that, don't we? Do you sometimes live that way? Do you sometimes live as though you don't have what you need available to you in Christ to face the difficulties that might come your way? to resolve conflict brother to brother, to battle sin on a daily basis, to endure a trial that, that, that is common to man. And what do you think that communicates to the watching world? What difference is there in Christ? Ah, uh, nothing. They struggle just as much as we do. They despair just as much as we do. They, they have no answers. Listen, how does that represent Jesus and his sufficiency to those who don't know him? This is what the Corinthians were guilty of, and this is what we sometimes are guilty of as well. When we allow some earthly circumstance to drive us to despair, to confound us to the point of having no answers and no comfort, look, that is an understandable dilemma for an unbeliever, isn't it? who is without hope and without God and without truth and without spiritual understanding. But for the Christian, that should never be the case. Because we have everything we need, Peter says, for life and godliness. In the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, this is why... Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote in his book, Spirits of Depression, uh, a depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms, and he is a very poor recommendation for the gospel. I said, Paul is of the same opinion here. Of all people, beloved Christians should have answers and hope and resources and solutions in the face of every earthly trouble and conflict. Otherwise, we may sadly communicate to the world that what we have in Jesus is not enough. Are you guilty of that sometimes? Do you not know, Paul says, do you not know all that is yours once you became Christ's? Listen, Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, it puts it this way, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Colossians 2 verse 3 says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
The point here is that in light of our union with Jesus, then, as Christians, we should be competent to settle, at the very least, earthly disagreements then among ourselves. After all, we have a superior wisdom. In fact, notice how he argues the same point then with the same pattern in the next two verses. Verses 3 and 4, look at the text. Just like he did in verse 2, Paul again asks a sarcastic question first about what they should have known, and then he follows it with an if-then argument with some logic. Notice, do you not know that we will judge angels, let alone matters of this life? Here's the if-then logic then that he draws from that statement. Or question. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Paul switches out <clears throat> the object of the world in verse 2, here in verse 3, for angels. Did you notice that? And I believe this is his subtle way of shifting the focus from the kind of issues that we will judge as Christians to the kind of beings whom we will judge as Christians. In other words, angels, think about this for a moment. How do we think of angels, right? Angels in Scripture are clearly considered to be powerful, majestic, spiritual beings, whether you're talking good or evil, right? Demons or angels, And so Paul's logic here then is that if Christians will one day judge such glorious spiritual creatures, then why, why in the world would we give away our role as judges now to those, you see, who are of no account in the church, who are devoid of the Spirit, who belong to the world, who are natural men without any spiritual understanding. Why would we do that? We're going to judge angels. And yet in the church, now we're appointing as judges those who have not one drop of spiritual life in them. It doesn't make any sense. Admittedly, verse 4 is notoriously difficult to translate, but I believe this is the best way to interpret it. In other words, when Paul asks here, look at verse 4, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I believe he's talking about unbelievers who have no place of prominence in the church. They have no spiritual wisdom, in other words. He's essentially saying this, then, why are you putting natural men or unbelievers in charge among the community of spiritual people who will one day rule over spiritual beings, powers, and authorities? It makes no sense. That would be like appointing as the referee for a basketball game someone who knew absolutely nothing about basketball So Paul's point is that spiritual men who will one day judge spiritual beings should at least be able to settle earthly disputes among themselves in the church. One commentary summarizes well, if the saints um, will 
be involved in the end time judgment of the world and angels, then they are fully competent to handle matters pertaining to the affairs of this age. Why? Because we have a superior wisdom. Notice Paul finally cuts to the chase here in verses 5 and 6. What he says, I say this to your shame. Like that's the first statement that's not a question. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to judge or decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. You see, for a church like Corinth, who boasted so much about its own wisdom and knowledge and gifting, here Paul finally exposes the folly of their ignorance He says, I write this, I say this to your shame. Shame on you, Paul says. He goes straight for the jugular. You should have been wise enough to handle such disputes in-house, but to your own shame, you are turning to the unbelieving world for arbitration instead. The Corinthians were acting like mere men without any spiritual light, and they had it backwards Guys, listen, the world should be coming to the church for wisdom, not the other way around. That reminds me of um, chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, where Paul says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. The Corinthians, to their shame, had forgotten what belonged to them in Christ. They were acting like they didn't have a superior wisdom. And so listen to what John MacArthur writes here, just to summarize. Because we are in Christ, Christians rank above the world and even above angels. And by settling our own disputes, we give a testimony of our resources and of our unity, harmony, and humility before the world. When we go to public court, our testimony is the opposite. By the way, I want you to notice, and again, the corporate responsibility here. Did you notice that? Did you see that? Notice the corporate responsibility here. Paul is not just admonishing those brothers specifically who were taking each other to court and involved in that case. But did you notice here that he's also rebuking the rest of the community for not stepping in to decide between their brethren? Did you see that? What's the implication there? Think about this, Christian. Preserving unity in the body of Christ is all of our responsibility. And it's more work than just, I don't have a personal dispute with anybody else. 
That's great, but you know, it's more than that. (laughs) It is your responsibility, Christian. It's our responsibility corporately to preserve unity in the body of Christ. Our testimony for Christ in this world is, after all, a corporate testimony. Which leads me to conclude this, then, that there is a sense in which we should be in one another's business, right? As fellow believers in the family of God, that is an implication from what Paul is saying here. We should be helping each other, especially in times of interpersonal conflict. Look, how often do we say, oh, don't, don't, don't get involved in that business, it's my business. And yet, that's not, that's not how Paul thought of it for the church. Do you do that for one another? Are you burdened by other members' disputes for the glory and reputation of Christ? Look, I'm not talking about the sinful gossip and the nosiness and just the busybody stuff that Paul will condemn for Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians. And, you know... I'm not talking about wanting to know juicy tidbits of people's drama just because. I'm talking about being burdened that there's a conflict between brother and brother and wanting to help, genuinely help and offer counsel and settle a dispute and arbitrate and mediate and be a peacemaker. Do you do that? You know what that means? That means you need to get in those people's lives. Listen, none of us have the luxury as Christians of saying to our fellow brothers and sisters in the local church, stay out of my business, stay out of my life. You don't have that luxury. Like when you joined the church, when you became united to Christ and thus attached to the body, you you gave up that so-called right. That's not how Paul viewed our responsibility to one another. In fact, just like the sexually immoral person in chapter 5 here, Paul places part of the blame on the Corinthians who themselves weren't guilty of that sin but just sat by and did nothing and watched as their brothers dragged each other to court over trivial earthly matters. That should never happen. Why? Because Christians should demonstrate a superior wisdom. That's reason number one why we should be able to settle earthly disagreements among ourselves. Let's just start this second one. We won't finish it tonight, but notice the second reason then why Christians can and should settle earthly disagreements within the church. Second reason, Paul argues, is because we should have an eternal perspective. Because we have an eternal perspective. In other words, we, we should value eternal rewards over temporary gains. And therefore, the petty disputes that you might have over earthly things would just fade away. Shouldn't even be an issue as these trivial, earthly, temporal matters. Notice how Paul makes this point in 
verses 7 and 8, at least first. We'll just, we'll just go that far. Actually, then, he writes, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Look, this is not a popular truth that he puts forth here. It's hard, I think, at times, even in our society to swallow, in our American society that loves to fight for our rights. Like for our culture today in 2024 America to hear that question from Paul, hey, why not rather be wronged? Hey, why not rather have your rights trampled over? I mean, how offensive. Uh, Notice in verse 7 here, though, the the word already suggests that Paul didn't need to wait around and know the outcome of the trial to know who won or who lost. Rather, verse 7, his point is that the sheer fact that these lawsuits even existed in the first place is already a loss for everyone involved. It's a lose-lose situation. One commentator put it this way, they were defeated the moment the legal proceeding began since its initiation served as testimony to the church's failure to resolve the conflict as a healthy family would be expected to do. Another writer says it even more succinctly, no matter who wins or loses the lawsuit, all lose spiritually. That's That's Paul's point here. The term here translated defeat is a term that means failure in contrast to success. It means losing instead of winning. And and in the original text, it shows up with the adverb completely or wholly, which is for some reason not translated in my New American Standard. But, But it implies this, that this situation is what we might call a total loss. Paul viewed this circumstance as a total loss. Look, you might as well start all over. You might as well just scrape it all in the trash. It was an utter failure that this was even happening in your midst. Who, who cares who won the, the trial? There's nothing beneficial about it whatsoever, no matter what the outcome is. In other words, look, Christian Corinthians, even if you win your lawsuit and gain financially, it is still a loss for you, Paul says. Why? Because some things, this is really important, guys. Do you have this as a conviction? Because some things are more important than getting what you think you're owed in this life. You see, some things are more important than temporary gain. In fact, notice Paul goes on to directly challenge and call into question the Corinthians' earthly mindedness here by asking, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Literally, why not let yourself be wronged? Why not let yourself be defrauded? Beloved, there is more to this life than getting what you think you're owed. 
On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and this even your brethren. Is it worth it? Paul would say, absolutely not. It's a total loss. Even if you get what you want. See, the Corinthians, like us Americans, are so bent sometimes on selfishly grasping for all that we can from each other in this life, even if it means wronging and defrauding one another. They, they couldn't stand the thought of losing out on something in this life. But Paul paints a very different priority for them here. He challenges them to adopt a more eternal perspective one that would instantly put their earthly squabbles in their place. In other words, Paul argues this. It is actually better to lose your argument than to lose your testimony. It is actually better to lose your rights than to lose your love. In fact, it is possible to win in an earthly court and lose in the heavenly one. It is possible to be right in the eyes of men, but so very wrong in the eyes of God. For us as Christians, we need to be reminded today that there's always something more significant than our own personal rights and privileges. For starters, honoring God is more important. Honoring God, obeying Him, following Him, trusting Him, serving Him, living for Him. Eternity is more important. Ministry is more important. Your brothers and sisters sitting here with you are more important. So you're cheated out of something in this life. So what? So you draw the short end of the stick on a deal. So someone gets away with the technicality and you don't get what you believe is rightfully yours. Yes, you've been wrong. Yes, you've been defrauded. So what, Paul says. Does that give you the right to, be wrong, to, be, to wrong others as well and to defraud in order to get back what you deserve? Does that justify your own unjust and selfish and vindictive behavior? Well, the Scripture answers with a resounding no. Listen to just some, a few other passages that teach this very same ethic, this way of the cross and self-denial. Listen to 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It's better. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Romans 12, verse 17 and 21, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Do not, become over, or do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love this one. This is on my lips with my kids all the time. Romans 15, 3, For even Christ did not please Himself. But as it is written, the, reproach of the, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Look, even Jesus. Listen, Philippians 2, right? Jesus didn't grasp for what was rightfully His. 
1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And then lastly, maybe the most famous of all, Matthew 5, from the lips of our Lord Himself, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Look, that's the world's ethic. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Why not rather be wronged? If it means honoring Christ and trusting God in the light of eternity, beloved, have an eternal perspective. Don't dishonor Christ by grasping for what is just temporary, what will perish in the next life. It's not worth it. My friends, Christians should not take other Christians to court over the loss of earthly possessions because we should have a more eternal perspective than that. So MacArthur writes, a Christian's primary concern should not be to protect his possessions or his rights, but to protect his relationship with his Lord and with his fellow believers. Last quote, another commentator, property and material possessions are of little consequence to those destined, listen to this, to inherit the kingdom. Did you catch that? It's in our text. Listen, believer. Paul is going to, this is where Paul's going in verses 9 through 11. He's going to say, he's going to put before us the, the reality that we inherit the kingdom of God. Why in the world? Would you act like an unbeliever and grasp for all that there is to have here and now? Notice for next time how Paul will conclude his argument in verses 9 through 11 by reminding us of who will actually inherit the kingdom. Those who have an eternal perspective. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, that you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. And twice in those final verses, Paul speaks of inheriting the kingdom. Why grasp for what is temporary? But there's something far more significant and important in this life than winning that petty battle over something that is ultimately perishable. And I love what Paul does here because you know what he does? He says, look, your eternal perspective should inform how you relate to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's really helpful, isn't it? That's, that's, that's very theological and yet so eminently practical, isn't it? That I, have you ever thought about the, the, the key to not 
having petty squabbles amongst your brothers and sisters is to just remind yourself of eternity? That, look, someday that, that little thing is not going to matter. You're going to stand before Christ and all glory will go to Him. And you'll, you'll reign with Him. And you'll inherit the kingdom of God which He's prepared for His own. What is this? This disagreement that you have between your brothers and sisters. Theo's sleeping now, so we're, we're done. But we look forward to the next, next time after the Q&A, verses 9 through 11. Uh, we'll tackle that glorious section. Um, but uh, hope, hopefully this is helpful, guys. It's more practical than you imagine it to be, right? Look, even if you never find yourself being sued by someone in this room, hopefully you never do. Nevertheless, look, there are principles here that cut at the heart of conflict and help us to resolve issues. So let's meditate on them. Let's, let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you so much for this passage and for just your kindness to us. You're so patient to sinners who at times um, are so short-sighted. Lord, help us to um, internalize even the principles here God, may we never um, selfishly grasp in this life for what we believe is our right at the expense of others and your glory. Lord, uh, work in us that attitude which Jesus, your Son, exemplified himself when he came and, and was obedient even to the point of death. And gave his life as a ransom for, for us. Lord, we are so thankful for that truth that you have accomplished our salvation. That you have forgiven us of our sins. Lord, empower us now by your spirit. Make us those who live and walk as your children who who live according to your word and your wisdom. And may we, may we, um, may we use all the privileges that, ours, that are ours in Christ. May we, uh, may we utilize all the resources at our fingertips, every spiritual blessing that you've provided by your spirit in your word so that we could represent you well to a, an unbelieving world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.